by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down, and there we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our heart. For there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator, happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Almost hard to give thanks, though, for that one, isn't it? Let us pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight our rock, and our redeemer. Alleluia. Amen. In about 587 BCE, approximately, it was a process, the empire of Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and exiled the leadership of Judah. Not only the king, but everyone who had power and influence, the priests, the major traders, the artisans, they were all marched by a Babylonian regiment into what is modern-day Iraq, which at that point was a lifetime away. If you can imagine, it would have been nearly a month of walking. And that's if you could manage to keep up a fairly steady, normal human walking pace. Yes, I did the math. But they probably couldn't quite keep up that pace. At least I can't imagine that they could have done. Because they would have done that entire walk in the deep grief of the destruction of the places that had given those captives their whole sense of identity. For these were people who knew themselves to be God's chosen ones, living in the land that God had promised to them, worshiping in the structure that had, at its very core, the Ark of the Covenant, which had been built by Moses according to God's specific design and which held, by common understanding, the very presence of God on earth, located in the Holy of Holies within the confines of the temple, which now lay in ruins in the middle of the city. These were a people whose sense of self was deeply tied to the place from which they had been driven and to the place that they had seen destroyed. They had not just lost a battle for any random city. They'd done that plenty of times in their history. But they had been uprooted and cut off from everything that had given the world sense and purpose. And today's psalm finds them right in that exact moment. 
Their month of walking is over. Their exile is stretching out before them. They have arrived at the rivers of Babylon to see the willow trees that line them. This is the moment when everything becomes real. And the grief and the pain of what they have just lived through becomes so strong that all they can do is weep. And all they can do is scream. And their only desire, their only thought is for revenge, is to hurt the people who have hurt them until they themselves feel that same utter despair. It's an uncomfortable psalm, isn't it? And I would not frankly, be terribly surprised to hear that several of you wondered, after Sue was finished reading, why I had chosen to end the psalm at verse 9, why we hadn't read the rest of the psalm, because clearly, clearly there had to have been more, right? Please, there had to have been more. (laughs) A whole bunch of you are nodding right now. And it's an understandable response. The normal structure of a psalm of lament does not end like that. It pivots toward the end, either to the hope that God will vindicate us or to the trust that God's faithfulness endures. But not here. We didn't read beyond verse 9 today because there is no verse 10. And there never was. There is nothing else. This is exactly where that psalm ends. With a wail of absolute anguish and uncontainable grief which, for some reason, is hard for us to hear. Psalms like this, moments like this, sit strangely for us in the context of a faith that we have come to know, which often encourages us not to dwell in grief, but to strive toward hope and to trust in God. Those other psalms of lament make more sense in that context. But while ultimately grief and despair should not be our endpoints. They are necessary stopping points along the way. And for as often as our faith provides us the reassurance that we will not be abandoned, we receive as well the reminder that that assurance does not mean we should just skip gaily over our pain and set aside our despair because none of it really matters. Feeling anguish is not faithless. It's human. It's normal. Humans will feel anguish and grief and despair. And we need to allow ourselves those feelings. We need to allow ourselves these moments before we try to make sense of everything our heart is telling us, before we start looking for meaning before even we pivot to that abiding truth of God's love. Would that we were better at that. Hmm? Sitting with our pain is awful. It's one of the most uncomfortable things I think that we can do. And I'm not suggesting that you're supposed to enjoy it. You probably won't. But when we are called upon to sit in our grief and in our pain, our tendency, culturally, is to look for ways to numb it, to push it away, to pretend it doesn't exist. 
We tell ourselves that we shouldn't hurt because someone else surely has it worse, right? We tell ourselves that we shouldn't hurt because pain is a sign of weakness and we should be strong because we have faith. But if we're bad at sitting with our own pain and letting ourselves feel our own grief, we are far worse at sitting with the pain of others, at dealing with heartbreak that is not our own. And so we impose our own discomfort upon that grieving process. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We cover it with platitudes that echo the very things that we say to ourselves, that others have it worse, that suffering is weakness and faithlessness. We say, well, at least it's not like what happened over there, or it's not like what happened to so-and-so, right? We say, God never gives us more than we can handle. Or worse yet, we change the subject entirely. We isolate. Nope, arm's distance. We avoid the pain. And we let our discomfort turn to anger and recrimination and blame. We engage in tone policing and respectability politics so as not to have to hear the suffering of our neighbors. And then we come to church. Because here is pain. Written right into our holy scripture right there in the Bible text that actually does come up in the lectionary, although it's an alternate reading, so no one ever uses it. Funny how that happens. We come to church, we hear the text, and there is raw pain sitting right there. Raw pain that does not give us a way out. That just hurts so much that it cannot be still. It needs to run, it needs to fight, it needs to scream, and we are invited to go along with it. The Bible doesn't give us platitudes, doesn't try to give us any faith lessons, doesn't bring the story together in a neat little moral that we can package up and set aside. It just makes us sit uncomfortably, twitching just a little bit. And listening to that howl of despair that ends this morning's psalm. But even more than that, we are invited to let the despair of those ancient people give us permission to do exactly what they did. To sit with the hurt. To sit in the pain of this world to feel how our bodies hold grief, whether it's in numbness or in quivering rage or in flooding tears, we are invited to feel our fear at being out of control, our anger at cruelty and thoughtlessness, our despair that the world will ever be as we wish that it could be. We are invited to grieve, fully, to rage, to weep, to feel without pushing it aside all of the things that human beings are designed to feel, even to feel the hurt that makes us want to lash out, even to feel the pain that we are told we are supposed to be ashamed of, but which is only, in the end, human. Psalms like this, 
stories like this in our scriptures push back upon the directives of our culture that make us uncomfortable in the face of grief and pain. They invite us to see ourselves, even at our most wounded, as part of the story of God. To say, yes, I understand that. Yes, I have felt that when we are face to face with others who are crying out in absolute despair. And to know that those feelings, even the ones that we are told to be ashamed of, will never separate us from the love of God. We know how the story of the exile ends, don't we? Because the story that the psalmist tells us is the story of loss and grief and suffering, yes. But it is not just an ancient story. It is a timeless story repeated in every generation by individuals and communities, each one with their own psalmist each one with their own poet, their own songwriter, their own storyteller, giving voice to the grief that brings us to our knees and longs to lash out until everyone feels that same pain. And we, who have found encouragement in Scripture to sit in our own grief for a little while, to push back against the shame and the platitudes, to feel our very real and very human emotions— we, who have learned to see ourselves reflected in the words even of this ancient poetry, are positioned to respond to the psalms of our modern day with empathy and grace, to respond with love to those around us whose pain cannot be contained, cannot be moderated to suit our comfort. For the psalms of lament continue no longer about the grief of an ancient war, but of the losses and the suffering that exist in our modern times. The Psalms of Lament cry out, sitting in pain that demands to be felt, when Emma Gonzalez, a student from Parkland, Florida, gave voice to her anger at a culture that is not moved to stop gun violence, even against schoolchildren, even when it happens again and again and again. The Psalms of Lament cry out in the voice of Kimberly Jones, an activist from Atlanta whose rage went viral within the past month at narratives that refuse to see the larger context of protest and riot and looting in the hopelessness of a no-win scenario. In the voice of David Diggs, who played Thomas Jefferson in the musical Hamilton, and whose pain is palpable in his updated riff on Frederick Douglass's 4th of July speech, which was itself a psalm of lament for its own time. And we listen. I hope we listen. Even when it's uncomfortable. We listen, still trying to push away the pain of this world, still trying not to feel the heartbreak that surrounds us, but the psalms of lament keep on crying out in a language I could not use from this pulpit, language that makes us uncomfortable, but which has the power if we are willing to become holy scripture to us in this modern era. Language that even though I can't use it here has the power to be the voice of God, the body of Christ, calling to us, calling us to sit in the grief, to sit in the pain that is part of the human experience, to allow us to connect with it, 
to remember the times that we have ourselves cried out in such pain that we could easily have thrown a punch, so hurt that we wanted to hurt others in a cycle that cannot end until we accept our own need to cry out without shame. It's the ability to lament, to sit in the awareness of all that human experience will feel, and the acknowledgement of our own worst moments, the grief that we cannot contain or control, the pain that sends us into that fight-or-flight mode, all of that still has the capacity to strengthen our connections one to another, to give us the empathy that leads to compassion, and from compassion to grace. All of this gives us the courage to look upon one another with the same understanding that we give now, with thousands of years' distance, to the ancients who wept in Babylon. Because lament is not optional if we want to be the body of Christ. And lament is not optional if we want to be the kingdom of our God. Thanks be to God. Amen.